Well, welcome everybody. It's Sunday night, and uh, we still study the Word together every Sunday night. We're finishing up Romans, the letter that changed the world, the biblical theology of Romans. This is part 58. What spiritual strength is for? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We're in Romans chapter 15, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We'll talk about that quote from the Old Testament. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. So, in harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He wants to talk about that for the glory of God. So in the middle of this, you know, 14 and 15, pretty tightly reasoned logic of Paul's argument, there's this wonderfully, uh, almost melodic theme verse that captures our hearts. It's in Romans 14, 17. We talked about it quite a bit last Sunday night. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul addresses, particularly in that verse, the subject of eating and drinking, because these were these were the ritual elements of conscience from previous commitments to the God-given preparatory old covenant that some of the newer converts to Christ, they found hard to leave those things behind. They had been brought up in them and they were, they were stuck in them and felt they were still important. And these were some of the issues that were causing friction between these these. Uh, weaker Christians and more mature, strong Christians who saw their freedom in Christ Jesus, saw the fulfillment of the old covenant, that those things weren't necessary anymore. And so there was this division. The weak were troubled because the strong were pushing their freedom in Christ. They didn't have to observe, and they didn't have to observe those regulations any longer. And so Paul argues in that 17th verse, Paul argues the kingdom of God isn't based on eating and drinking. It's not based in those rituals. The Holy Spirit is the agent of the kingdom of God in our lives, and he brings righteousness and peace and joy. And, and when you think about it, righteousness, peace, and joy, they're presented as the manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit, one could easily assume, because those are the fruits of the Spirit, that he grows in our lives. 
But there's more than that. Kingdom of God isn't eating and drinking. It's righteousness. It's peace. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. But, but genuine unity in Christ, it can't just be ushered in by singing songs about love and peace. And it can't be just staged merely by, a lot of people think, if we just remove all the denominational labels and just be one united body in Christ, then there'll be unity. You can't create it that way. Maybe to take it a bit further, and it might surprise you, this kind of unity in the body, it can't even just be prayed into existence, though prayer is crucial. This is the case Paul is going to make in this 15th chapter. I have five thoughts I want to leave with you. One, the unity of the Spirit in a church congregation can only be nourished and sustained when spiritual strength is exercised in the right way. That's the important part. Spiritual maturity has to be exercised in the right way. And I get it in that very first verse of chapter 15. We who are strong, Paul puts himself in that group. He says, I know there's nothing in eating meats or there's not a problem. He says, I understand that. But he still says, 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation. That's the big word there. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So, once again, for the sake of his argument, notice Paul divides the Christians at Rome into those same two groups he's been talking about, strong and weak. This time he's placing his emphasis on the strong. We who are strong. But this time, Paul has a particular point in mind. How are we going to measure spiritual strength? We spend a lot of time talking about being strong in the Lord. How are we going to measure spiritual strength? That's the key issue here. And, and, and the brunt of Paul's instruction is, is aimed. It's aimed directly at the strong. So spiritual strength, it's not enough to have spiritual strength. You have to use spiritual strength. How is it going to be used? Well, strong believers aren't in the body of Christ, so they can, like those with chiseled, strong physical bodies, they can just admire themselves in mirrors under the floodlights. No, spiritual strength, spiritual strength is for something. And Paul tells us what that something is. We who are strong we have an obligation. There's an assignment. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So you note the tone of that command. The strong, Paul says nothing about the weak at this point. The strong have an obligation. They have an assignment. There is something strong Christians must do to demonstrate their spiritual strength. What they must do is stated first positively, bear with the failings of the weak, and then negatively, not please ourselves. Positively, bear with the failings of the weak. Negatively, not please ourselves. 
Those are really striking words. I mean, we spend a great deal of time in the church talking about how people become strong Christians. Paul is writing about what we are to do as strong Christians. We sometimes neglect this aspect of using spiritual strength. It takes a great deal of effort. Being a strong Christian isn't primarily about just what you know. It certainly includes that. Ignorance is not bliss. It includes knowing, but it's more than just knowing. Being a strong Christian is primarily about what you do with your spiritual strength. Now, Paul has already given examples how apparently strong Christians can use their strength incorrectly. Ironically, strong Christians can use their strength to abuse those who are weak and vulnerable. In fact, chapter 14 begins with this kind of an example. Chapter 14, 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's the wrong way to demonstrate your strength in Christ. Paul cautions against this wrong display, a strong Christian stance that is, that is all show. The strong has a firm understanding of his or her freedom in Christ, and he's right. The problem isn't that he's mistaken. The problem is he's right, but he hasn't yet learned how to handle his rightness, how to walk in his rightness. He mistakenly thinks, this strong Christian, he mistakenly thinks that his role as the strong is to prove the error of the weak. Not so, says Paul. And so Paul, he reminds the strong, 14.1, welcome the one who is weak, but not to quarrel. Not to force change into his mind. Not to win an argument. Not to win a point. The strong mustn't use their knowledge, their strength, to make a major issue over a small issue. Now, there may, there may indeed come a time when correcting a brother or sister is, is a Christian imperative. People can drift into serious sin. They can drift into specific rebellion against the revealed will of God. In those situations, love demands some kind of correction, but not not over disputable manners, 14.1. Welcome the one who is weak, not to quarrel. We're not, we're not going to fight about eating this meat, that meat, this drink, that drink. Well then, Pastor Don, what's the point in being strong? What's the point in actually being right? And Paul's answer to that legitimate question is pure spiritual genius. Because you who are of the strong, because you're one of the strong, you know that you have freedom in these disputable matters. You know we're not talking about issues of true biblical holiness when we're considering issues of past religious upbringing and the forming of conscience around issues not dealt with in the Scriptures. And because you're strong in Christ Jesus, you know that you stand by faith through grace, you walk in freedom formed by a strong understanding of the finished work of Christ. Good for you. But here's the point. 
That strong knowledge of your freedom in Christ, it means something. It means you should already know that these issues aren't big issues. In other words, it means it should be easier for you to give up your rightful involvement in these things than it will be for your weaker brother who still thinks these are big issues. Your freedom gives you an advantage and it gives you a responsibility your weaker brother doesn't yet have. He's not ready to forfeit his views, his views on these issues, but you should certainly be willing to forfeit yours. You know these aren't a big deal anyway. And that sets the stage for Paul's next admonition to the strong. Number two, pleasing my neighbor in Christ is more important than proving I'm right. We've already kind of looked at it, but now look at 15 and read one and two together. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, that's what we read. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. So, so truly strong people, as opposed to just inflated people. Strong people don't have to flex. They don't have to pose with their spiritual strength. What they sense is their obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, 15.1. That means to you, you carry the confusion, the fear of that spiritually nearsighted person. You carry those feelings graciously. You know how to lovingly yield to the weaknesses of that brother in non-essential matters. So, so the strong never add guilt to the weak. They labor to make the burden of the weak feel lighter, more agreeable, never to make the burden feel greater, more condemning to conscience. So, so the strong don't give the weak anything to be needlessly upset about. That's what he's saying. The strong cater to the weak. Paul sums it up beautifully. The strong never, 15-1, they never please themselves. That's not their goal. Think about it. The strong don't please themselves. That's what spiritual strength is for. I'm pleasing myself when I focus on my own need to win the argument. I please myself when I focus on my need to prove my point. I please myself when I demolish unimportant but cherished convictions of my weaker brother. Paul says, the one sure sign of spiritual strength is the capacity to cater to the weaknesses of my brother rather than catering to my own ego. I'll gladly make myself look small in order that my weaker brother may find nurture and confidence. So the picture Paul finally settles on is the image of, of constructing a building. It's in that second verse. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, listen, to, to build him up. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Like a, like a construction project. So we all understand that edification, building up a weak brother, 
It's a construction process, Paul says. It's not a demolition process. The strong are not in the business of tearing down a weaker brother. Their only concern is building up a weaker brother. Point number three. The loving responsibility of the strong toward the weak is modeled on the pattern of Christ's relationship with us. Now we're getting to the core of the issue here. Look at 15. I'm going to read verse 3, and then I'm going to read verse 7, because the same thought gets repeated there. So 15, 3, and then 7. For Christ, why should the strong not think of themselves? Leave their rights behind. Just build up the weak. Why should they do that? For, verse 3, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Seven, therefore, there it is again, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, so in quoting Psalm 69, 9, and, and placing these words in the mouth of Christ speaking to the Father, Paul draws our attention to the entire earthly mission of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his sacrificial death on the cross, Christ is the ultimate example of one who spent every single personal right for the blessing of those who were not only weak, but were downright rebellious. Paul says, do it like Jesus did for you. We studied these in Philippians 2, 4 to 8. The same, the exact same thematic instructions, Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, why would they do that? Five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to talk about Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Seven, made himself nothing. Wow. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, the conclusion of this lesson is made clear in the contrast that's held out between the contrast between 14.1, Romans 14.1, and Romans 15.7. 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's the wrong way to do it. 15.7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, and that's for the glory of God. When you do it the right way, God gets glory. Point number four. The lessons of the Old Testament for the church today. Paul talks about this in chapter 15 of Romans, verses 4 and 5. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement. So he's, he talked about endurance and encouragement in verse 4 that comes through the Scriptures. And then he talks about the same two words, endurance and encouragement, and they come through God. 
and you can't help but see what Paul is doing. This is just a little aside here, but the clear implication of this is when the scriptures say something, God is saying it. The main idea here is that we get endurance and encouragement, verse 4, through the scriptures because it's through the scriptures that the God of endurance and encouragement, verse 5, speaks. There's another idea here. It's never easy for any of us to, to do what Paul says the strong are supposed to do, to pull in the reins of self-exaltation, pride, self-gratification, showing our maturity and our knowledge, displaying it, sticking up for our own rights. It's, it's terribly hard to do. Where does strength come from to do that? It really only comes from a, from a greater hope. We need to have something more solid, something bigger to aim our lives at than immediate self-exaltation. We need a future hope. He says, you, you, you stay in the scriptures. When you read them, make sure you hear God speaking to your heart. Put your trust there. Anchor your soul there. Take the hope that God's word offers that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The strength from your study of God's word today isn't necessarily going to be felt today, but one day it's going to be needed. Biblical hope accrues over time as you soak your mind in it, as you hear God speaking in it. So don't neglect the hope-sustaining power that only the Scriptures can bring. That's what we're doing here. You start to see, oh, oh, that's what spiritual strength is for. Oh, that's what God calls me to as a stronger believer. Place your hope in it. Anchor your life in it. Five, last point. I find this, I find this a, a beautiful truth. The goal of our congregational life together it gets talked about in Romans 15, 6, and 7. That together, circle together. So he's not talking about me individually. He's talking about us as a church, CW Community Church. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's still thinking now about how God's going to get glorified by the church being together. Therefore, welcome one another. Now he's going back to what he was talking about. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, so briefly, apparently it's not enough that my life glorifies God and that your life glorifies God. God is not searching merely for our individually expressed praise. No, what he desires is a unified corporate expression of worship and honor to his name, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just mean we sing together really loud. That's not what he means. He means God desires he desires a unified witness where the strong truly do bear with the infirmities of the weak. A unified witness 
a witness that proves God is the creator of all people and he's greater than the ordinary little things that divide us. That's the kind of witness that glorifies God. I can't demonstrate that by myself. I can only demonstrate that God is more important to me than my own rights. I can only demonstrate that when I have to lay my rights down for other people in the body of Christ. Anybody can be spiritual all by himself. But that's not our calling. Corporate unity shows that we truly prize unity. And disunity equally reveals what we truly prioritize and prize. And that's why genuine, God-glorifying praise can only be manifested to this watching world in the corporate unity and mutual submission that exists in Christ's redeemed church. So, so glorify God in a context where you can prove he is more precious to you than your own rights. What a text. Paul took two chapters just to make sure that the strong understand what spiritual strength is for, and it's for one thing in the body of Christ. is to construct and upbuild those who are weaker in faith. Let's pray. We love your word. We thank you for your word. And now help us, Holy Spirit, to apply your word. Help us to show the same kind of grace, the condescending grace we received from you, the one who laid down all rights. Help us to demonstrate that for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that the world will look and notice not just the songs we sing and the buildings we inhabit, but the unity that your Holy Spirit inspires. Jesus' name I pray and I thank you. Amen. God bless you, church. Stay in the word and join us for our prayer time.